0: Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from our archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic.
1: Christopher, it's our season eight finale. I can't believe it came so soon. I know. Crazy, huh? And it's been well over five years since we first launched the show. And And nobody has stopped us? (laughs) (laughs) Now, here's the thing. I've been getting a few messages from Famous Lost Words fans who are going okay Mm -hmm. you promised a new wave edition where the hell is it
0: (laughs) Oh, and
1: we haven't done it yet and basically it is a big lift so for that reason alone we have not had the opportunity to get to the uh, new wave episode yet and i do apologize for that
0: it'll just be that much sweeter when it arrives
1: That's right. That's right. But as always, Christopher, I want to ask you a question. Yes. So what group or artist do you like more because of the interviews that we've played on this very show?
0: There's one that sticks out in particular, not maybe for the obvious reasons, but it's Tears for Fears. And it was oh. it was Roland Orzabel who does <laughs> yes. the Ringo impression, right? That's right. Brilliant. And and what I what I remembered when I when I thought about them is that I had seen them in their heyday, at their absolute peak. They played at Massey Hall in Toronto, and I mean the playing was great, the singing was great, the songs were great, but the energy stopped at the edge of the stage. They just, for me, did not make a connection with their audience. They, it just kind of lay there, as some shows oh. do. I see. Yeah. So when I saw how filled with personality he was in the context of our interview, it just kind of changed my feelings.
1: Yeah, that's funny because I've only seen Tears for Fears once, and it was just—it was just around the time of Songs from the Big Chair, and it was right. at Massey Hall, and I thought that show was crazy. So it might have been a different show that we saw, <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I might—I I think I saw them in '85. And it was a big yes. show and everybody was just like screaming the songs out. So I remember it slightly differently.
2: <laughs> Isn't <laughs> no that kidding. funny?
1: So if we turn the question around to me, what group of artists do you like more because of the interviews we've played on Famous Lost Words? First of all, I would say Gino Vanelli because I interviewed him for episode 316. Have a listen to that. And he tells... Some of the best stories and one of my favorite stories of all time is him talking about getting his record contract from A&M Records by essentially yeah. accosting Herb Alpert in the in the driveway, <laughs> in the parking lot of AM Records yeah. and and how Herb Alpert was scared of this kind of. This hippie looking guy from Canada kind of, you know, almost attacking him, saying, please, sir, listen to my music. And he did. There was something about a connection that they had. And Herb Alpert did eventually listen to Gino Vanelli's music a couple hours later and signed him on the spot. And him telling that story made me love Gino more and, of course, have ultimate respect for Herb Alpert in making that decision. And the other artist that I like more because of the interviews yes. that we played is an artist we're featuring today and it's the band Loverboy. And I got to tell you Chris, ah. we've played a little bit from Mike Reno before on Famous Lost Words, mm-hmm. but this is a long form interview. It's May Potts in conversation with Mike Reno and he is profoundly entertaining and optimistic. There's so much to like in this interview and it's one of the things that kind of made me like a uh, lover boy more than I ever did.
0: You know what? I was right with you on that one, too, because I interviewed Mike from my book, Is This Live?, oh, you know, The History of Much Music. Right. And he has all these stories to tell, and he loves sharing them. He's he's very self-deprecating. He makes fun of himself all the time. Yes, yeah. And he just, he's such an entertainer, and you, he just, you know, every syllable that he says kind of adds to that overall impression i i've really enjoyed interviewing mike it was one of my favorite ones for the book
1: it's so entertaining and i uh, really look forward uh, to playing that particular interview for you in just a few seconds from now
0: and that's not all we have this week right tom
1: that's right christopher following the great lover boy chat we have an amazing series of clips from chuck berry the very first inductee into the rock and roll hall of fame Chuck breaks down a number of his biggest hits, and then he veers off in a very strange direction. But Chuck has a lot to say, and it's all good. i got to admit, it's really something to have so much audio from one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Uh, Speaking of pioneers, we have my long-lost interview with Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols. As you can imagine, Johnny is not one to mince words, even if those words can be pretty off-putting sometimes but this is a five-minute chat that I'd actually forgotten that I had done, but it's very interesting and hopefully very entertaining for you. And for our podcast listeners, Christopher has a very special tribute to the late Burt Bacharach, the musical genius behind dozens of hits that spanned decades. So we have a little bit of everything in this episode, but first, Christopher, I think we need more cowbell. (laughs) Oh, that sounds great.
0: Working for the weekend lover boy from 1981 what a great rock and roll song that is It really is Mike Reno is a great interview I mean he's got stories for days loves to tell them and he's got that wonderful self effacing attitude to go with it but that's what happens when you're 44 years into a career that you love and which continues to this day for sure in this interview Tom from 2007 Mike talks with Mae Potts and they cover a lot of ground The first clip is a long one, but check it out. Mike takes advantage of the time to touch on a host of subjects, positive and negative. But what's amazing for me is how sunny his attitude is about the business of making music and all the changes that are happening, and the ability of Loverboy to roll with those changes.
3: Okay, hit the button. We're speaking with Mike Reno. Loverboy, just getting started. What would possess a band that has been together for over 25 years to call their album Just Getting Started?
4: It's a quirky, weird sense of humor that we've always had. <laughs> I mean, we started, like, joking around with stuff like that years ago when we wrote uh, The Kid is Hot Tonight, but where will he be tomorrow? It's very tongue-in-cheek, this yes. group. We we kind of laugh at the whole industry, because we, all we really like to do is get on stage and rock and uh, play our guitars and sing and drum. And
3: And that hasn't changed.
4: And with this new album, we feel like we're just getting started. You know, I mean, we really do feel fresh and happy and... Uh, You know, we've moved on. We've had a few things that have set us back. You know, we lost our bassist. We lost a few women along the way. We've gained some wisdom. We got a few kids, some we don't know about, I'm sure. (laughs) And ten new songs. And I mean, we just we just started writing songs, and it just started pouring out, man.
3: You know, it it is it is great. And I've spent a fair bit of time listening to this. So let's actually let's get to the songs right away. Then, and and I'm going to start with my favorite, which is called "Back for More." All right. I just love that song. And to me, that's one, you know, as you're aware, the industry ebbs and flows and sort of what can work on radio and rock has had, you know, different sort of tones through the 90s and into this. This one to me sounds like such a current rock song.
4: Cool. We were actually going to call the album back for more. And then I'm sitting around and I, I said, back for more but we haven't gone anywhere because we still do 100 shows a year so i said back for more really doesn't work for me as a title but it's, it's one of my favorite songs on the album i think it's the second song that i sang too i just i said i and i think it was the first song i sang and uh after we got it going i just went wow this sounds great and we just kept writing and writing and writing and writing
3: yeah, it is a good one. Now, let's let's address that. You have been touring ninety uh, eight, two thousand and one, two thousand and five. So, what was the impetus for now putting an album
4: out? Our fans basically said, if you don't put an album out, we're not going to be your fans anymore.
3: <laughs> Give us something, please. Because we cut, you
4: know, we talk to them after every show. We we see fans every night when we're gigging, and we're gigging all year mm-hmm. long. Every year, we just seem to be always working. Which is great, and that's you know why it keeps, keeps our chops up, keeps my voice good. But in reality, it's nice to be current. It's nice to be uh, relative. It's nice to be now and doing something. And I had a lot of things on my mind I wanted to write about, and I started working with a group of producers and writers that really translated it well when I was writing and cutting demos. Mm-hmm. And I played a couple songs for for the band and they said, well, what have you been doing? I said, well, I've been ra- working with these guys and writing these songs and they said, I played them for them and they went, whatever you're doing, just keep doing it because they sound amazing. And then the band all started getting involved and you know, get, sending some songs in writing and mm-hmm. so the whole thing turned into a real pleasurable experience.
3: You guys have got, you know, obviously such a history and, and so much respect in the industry and like you said, fans out there. Um, what 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 has been the reaction like now that you sort of started calling up people and saying, hey, we're working on a new record. What was the response? Uh, uh,
4: most people said, wow. And some people said, why bother? Like, who's going to play it? And I said, well, that's kind of a negative attitude because people my age, younger than me, a little older than me, whatever. I think the artist that they grew up with should still write and record music. I mean, I can't retire. This is what I do. I like to hear new songs. The Eagles come up with new songs all the time. Rod Stewart's doing something new all the time. I mean, all these bands got stuff happening. I wanted to have a new record with some fresh material to play because when we stand on stage, I love to play, don't get me wrong, Turn me loose and working for the weekend and loving every minute of it and things like that. And and we do it every night. But for the band, it's really great to... Sink your teeth into some new songs because it's it's fun for us to play new songs. It's it's part of being alive, you know.
3: And I think it goes beyond, like in other words. I mean, I I certainly wish you all the well and hope you get a hit out of this, like a you know big chart topper or whatever. But at the end of the day, and I've had this conversation with artists, you know, a hit record is is a, a we've talked about, oh, just a one-hit wonder. I said, do you know how people give their right arm to have one hit? Like, in other words, if you're a musician and you love music, it's beyond that. To have a hit is like gravy, right? Yes. So for for what I see that you're doing, absolutely. Why would you stop making music at any point?
4: Exactly. And like nowadays, especially with uh, what's happening with, uh, you know, with the internet and digital downloading and all this stuff, some people will choose just to take it for free and, and I hope that they do and enjoy it. And then when we come to town, they come to the shows. So what it does for us is it just keeps us in the business. It keeps us working. Maybe next time we'll play a hall that's a bit bigger. Maybe next time we'll be in the arena. You never know. And if you get some songs on the radio, it's a bonus. And I think a lot of these songs could easily end up on the radio. It's just a matter of uh, having to yeah. listen. And, and and wow, I'd like to... you know. I, I think there should be a, a show where people phone in and say, that's that's a good song or yeah. that's not a good song. You know, like have an hour every, yeah. mo- every month or something where people, <laughs> and you test it on them or something.
0: Right.
4: But I had a, 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 most everybody I've talked to are just totally ecstatic that we have a new album out. And they're very happy because they, they think it sounds great. They think mm-hmm. the band's playing great. And they think I'm singing great. And I just say, wow. That's why I' that's why I'm alive that's what I do
3: and because you have been doing it all along you've been touring then na- the nature of the business has certainly changed over the last couple of decades as as we're aware working in it what is it that you find more challenging now what's what's better and what's worse in the way that the the business is now working?
4: Uh, I think everything's in better mm-hmm. I think the old regime with the giant tower which was the record company towering over us peasants and telling us what to do and whipping us and throwing us some crumbs Mm -hmm. is gone, thank God. Because now everybody's being creative. They're doing, you know, you can release stuff. You can record stuff first off on your laptop if you want and make it sound like a million bucks. You can record it and mix it right on the laptop. I mean, when could you ever do that? Really, yeah. So you just have to buy all this equipment and get a room and soundproof it. Now you can cut songs and wherever you are. You can cut them in the hotel room. I mean, we do all the time. The other thing is, we don't really have to answer to anybody that's cracking the whip and telling us what to do. And uh, the old way of doing things was they kept 98% of the money and they kept 98% of everything. And they throw a gold album at you like you were supposed to ha- you know, stop in the street and, and like the world came to an end. I mean, it's like they took all the uh, fun out of it. And now it, it seems like there's fun back in it. You can put your stuff on the Internet, whether you're a a signed artist or an unsigned artist. If you write songs, you, you can put it out for people to look at through those YouTube and all these different great rooms that you can chat in and you can listen to things and you can hear things. And I think things are dynamically wonderful right now.
3: Do you think that because of your strength as a live band, you have an advantage over some others? Because nowadays it seems as though that's where the money's going to be, is in the touring.
4: Well, to tell you the truth, we have an advantage because we have 14 or 15 top 40 hit songs in our back pocket. So no matter what, they're going to know those 14 songs, right? Mm -hmm. And out of those 14, they may love five But some of the new bands don't get a chance to build up a catalog of songs like that. But we didn't just build it up overnight. I mean, we've been at it a long time. This is our 28th year of touring. And uh, so we do have the hits, and I think that's a real bonus. And the, the, the young bands that are starting now, If they work hard enough and do it right, they'll have a catalog of songs in a few years too.
1: Just an excellent interview with Mike Reno of Loverboy in conversation with May Potts in 2007. Normally I might chop these interviews down to bite-sized pieces to edit out the dull parts, but I just love the way the first eight minutes of that chat just flow. And as I said earlier, this interview made me like Loverboy more than I ever did. Well, Mike is so
0: entertaining and May also yeah. gives him beautiful room to roam there too in the yes. interview. She yeah. did a great job. Yeah. Here's Mike talking about the sudden loss of bassist and good friend Scott Smith.
3: Let's talk about um, Stranded, which you, you wrote as a tribute to Scott Smith. Um, and for people, I know your, your fans know the history of what happened with Scott, but maybe you can just sort of, for people who aren't aware, talk about your former bassist.
4: Well, November 1st, 2000 Scott Smith was declared lost at sea I was in Mexico doing some uh, some touring with this all-star band I like to do on my time off just so I can get a holiday out of it and I, I had a phone call worst phone call of my life and, and I tried to rush out of uh, out of uh, Mexico as fast as I could and go to San Francisco where this whole thing happened and think that I could make it all better but he, he couldn't be found, so we couldn't find him. So we, it was devastating, and it was just brought me to my knees. I was sad and felt really bad for months and months. And I didn't think I could go on with the band. Or last thing I felt like doing was singing songs that Scotty and I and the boys had been playing together for 20 years, 22 years at that point. You know, it was a really bad thing and harsh thing to have to go through. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Finally, after I kind of stopped feeling sorry for myself, I got up one day and i said i gotta i gotta think about doing the show. I got so many emails from fans that said it would be a double tragedy if Lover Boy never went back on the road. Mm-hmm. They understood it may take me some time, mm-hmm. and the band let me decide because they knew how close we were mm-hmm. and so after I jumped up and did it again i I figured the natural the natural guy for the job would be one of scott's friends from winnipeg and he happened to have a bunch of scott's equipment over the years scotty would give him a bass or or he would acquire a bass that scotty was using on the road because we had a lot of equipment we play so many shows sometimes stuff breaks so you got to have a few of everything so he walked into rehearsal the first time and he had one of scott's bases and he came over he says give it a hug you know and i knew he was going to be our guy and uh Kenny Spider-Seneve is our bass player for the last seven years, and he's been a real real joy to work with. He's wonderful, probably the best bassist in the country, but he's also a wonderful human being, and he's made it very easy on us. Oh,
3: good. Yeah. It's a beautiful song, Stranded.
4: That song is about how how I or people like me feel when we're left here and our loved ones are taken away because they're obviously in some wonderful, great beyond place that's... Mm -hmm. They feel no pain, but it's the people that are left on Earth that feel the pain, right. and that's where that song comes from. It's how I feel being
1: left here,
3: and stranded. It's a song yeah, that everybody in some way can relate to. I hope so. Very
1: heartfelt tribute to Scott Smith and some nice comments about his replacement, Kenny Seneve, who is still with the band, and the band is still touring to this day.
0: More to come from Loverboy from 2007, including the stories of some of their biggest hits. This is Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. And we're in the middle of a 2007 interview with Mike Reno of Loverboy. Tom, the origin of the band's name is a great story. Loverboy started as Coverboy. And Cover Boy
4: came from when we were sitting around watching a movie. Paul and I and our girlfriends, we used to hang out a lot. And uh, we noticed we were watching a movie or hanging out, visiting and stuff. And the girls were all reading Vogue magazine and Cosmo. And then you they're all over the the coffee table, you know. And I go, that's interesting, you know. We should call ourselves Cover Boy. And then maybe dress up nice and have, have, have kind of a cool look to us, you know. Put yeah. a little effort into it. Sure. And then the next morning, Paul called me and he went, how about if we have, once again, tongue firmly planted in the cheek, why don't we call ourselves Lover Boy? And he says, if it works, it'll work. And if we don't, we'll just get our ass kicked. You know, It's like one of those kind of <laughs> names. So it worked. So I was, I was quite surprised. Uh, we had a few problems with it, of course, on tour with ZZ Top because a lot of bikers came and they kind of went, yeah, hey, boy, you all right with this bottles of Jack Daniels. How would you like that, Mr. Loverboy? <laughs> but that was funny. We've never had a problem with it.
3: Oh, it's a perfect name. Well, it's worked for you so far.
1: Hey, lover boy.
3: Hey, lover boy. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. My pleasure. Oh, it's been great.
1: Excellent story. Okay, now let's hear some stories behind the band's biggest songs.
0: Working for The weekend is a rock and roll anthem for all time. Here, Mike Reno tells May where the idea began.
3: Okay, let's put it this way. A long weekend in the summer does not come or go. Without somebody saying, oh, yeah, you got to play Working for the Weekend. Like, that is the Canadian Long Weekend Anthem. Every Friday we have to play it.
4: Well, believe it or not, it's it's that way for a lot of people all over the world. It's been in so many movies. I mean, it's in, like, I don't know, seven movies. And everybody knows it. And all it is is it's fun. It's fun. Everybody can sing along. And it's it's just all about, uh, man, getting ready to party your butt off. <laughs> and that's why we wrote it. We noticed people, uh, but b- Paul was telling me he, he, we, are, we, we were actually going to call it Waiting for the Weekend because you're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting in pulses. And I see all these people, they start getting ready. You see them come home from work, they got some dry clean, they're getting ready to go out. So they're waiting for the weekend, and then they're just going to kick butt. And I'm working away with them, writing the song, and I said, I said, it's, I think we should call it Working for the Weekend and just make it like, everybody's working for the weekend. And so that's how that uh, you know ended up being polished up.
1: It's the blue-collar anthem.
4: You got it, baby. Yeah,
1: I love it. The idea is so basic, but it
0: really did work. Next up, Mike talks about his multi-instrumental approach to writing Turn Me Loose.
4: That's the big breakup song. I wrote that because I was having... Uh, a relationship was coming to an end years ago. And uh, since then, people have taken it on as their own anthem. Like if the boss is giving them the gears, they just say, well, I've had enough of that. I'm, ter- you know, turn me loose. I'm going to do everything. I'm I'm out of here. We've had people, e- even as crazy as like a, a lot of, I remember once a motorcycle club. I'll leave Unnamed lost a member and they wanted him buried in a Loverboy t-shirt and Turn Me Loose was the anthem for the whole funeral because they celebrated his life rather than, you know, got disappointed in the, in the whole thing. So that was kind of cool. But I, I, I wrote Turn Me Loose on the bass guitar and I kept playing that bass line over and over and over again. Every time I picked up the bass, I'd go boom, 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 boom. boom. And finally Paul just went, either... We better finish this song or quit playing that that line you just every time you know, and then I'm also a drummer too, so I'd get on the drums like I think you should go like this, you know you know so that's kind of how that song came together and um, it was kind of interesting because we shot videos in Albany, New York before anybody really knew what videos were. Loverboy delivered three videos which we shot one weekend, all three of them mm-hmm. Th- we delivered those to to uh, uh, MTV in New York the first week that they were open. And because we were one of maybe 10 or 15 groups that actually prepared videos, because it was a brand new format, we got on heavy rotation and we became like really famous because when you're on TV, you're really famous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we've talked about that, Christopher. Bands that had their videos played on MTV or Much Music became recognizable and famous overnight And Loverboy was smart
0: enough to jump on that train very, very early. Mm Mm-hmm. Tom, The Kid is Hot Tonight started life as a parody.
3: The Kid is Hot Tonight.
4: Exactly. (laughs) Uh, We were poking fun at at the new wave sound. And we were poking fun at ourselves. And who would know that I'd be singing that song 28 years later? You know, because The Kid is Hot Tonight, right? Yeah but where will he be tomorrow? Uh, right at the time there, there was groups coming out like the Knack and, and, and the Cars and, and we were wondering if it was a sound that would last forever. So that's kind of tongue-in-cheekingly why we put that lyric in there, the kid is hot tonight, but where will he be tomorrow? Uh, we were actually kind of making fun of ourselves. Like, I mean, what are we going to be doing this when we're in our right. 50s? You know, mm-hmm. I don't think so. Boy, was I wrong. But I can't get enough. I can't stop.
1: <laughs> Another great story from Mike Reno of Loverboy. And Christopher, once per show, I like to comment on how likable an artist is and this is that moment.
0: And if there are no likable artists, it's me, right? <laughs> Mike talks about his favorite song. And well, you probably know which one it is already because you've heard this interview, but it surprised me because it's not, for me, a prototypical Loverboy song.
3: Yeah. When It's Over, which, you know, great ballad
4: that is that's actually my favorite song is it i I, you know everybody gets to pick a favorite song not very many people ask me what my favorite song is but that is my favorite song i just love the bluesy feel of it i love the the staggered loping and it's got great drums great guitar great bass great keyboards it's really a a well-blended song and it's actually the story of my life i guess i was being a little selfish and Paul kind of said, you know, I've been watching what's going on in this relationship and this is really what's happening. So it's kind of like how I was dealing with a relationship at the time. And then I wanted to say, just because it's over, I hope it doesn't mean we'll never like, you know, say hi to each other or see each other again. It's not like the end of the world. That's why we wrote the the lyric, I hope you're with me when it's over. I hope we're still friends. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where that song came about.
1: Great stuff from Mike Reno of Loverboy, one of the absolute gems in the famous Lost Words archive. Still to come, he was the first person inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's surely because he wrote some of the greatest songs ever. Chuck Berry explains them all, song by song, next. From
0: 1955, his first big hit, Chuck Berry and Maybelline. Tom, if you had to list the founding fathers of rock and roll on one hand, it might be tough. And there'd be a lot of disagreement. But I can tell you that there's one artist who'd always make the cut, and that is Chuck Berry. Where would we be in the history of rock and roll without songs like Roll Over Beethoven, Johnny B. Good," and Memphis? Mm -hmm. Chuck's big break came in 1955, when blues man Muddy Waters introduced him to chess records in Chicago and his first hit was Maybelline. He was also one of the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He talks about writing Maybelline.
5: It started back in 1954 when I was touring uh, the country and uh, I stopped here in Chicago and I heard Muddy Waters playing at uh, what was called the Palladium and on State Street, and uh, I sat and listened to him and got groovy, you know, listening to Muddy, and uh, I asked him, uh, how do you get into records, if, as I have been asked many times. So um, he said, well, go over and see Lynn Chess, and uh, Leonard Chess told me to, well, let uh, me hear some of your material. And uh, I said, should I bring the band up? He said, well, just bring some recordings uh, up uh, that you have. This, at that time, was a home recording that I had that we had been talking about. And I brought it up uh, two weeks later. And on this tape, I had uh, Maybelline, We We Ours, and uh, I can't recall now the others. But these two, he chose off the tape and told me to bring the band back. I did this, and uh, and we recorded uh, on professional material and uh, he and Maybelline of course you you know the rest after it was put out in fifty five May of May of fifty five.
1: Oh, Chuck Berry's lyrics were so much fun to listen to. As I was motivating over the hill I saw Maybelline in a Coupe de Ville, and my favorite song of <laughs> his has to be No Particular Place to Go. Oh. I just yeah. love the feel of that song. Riding
0: along in my automobile. Yeah. <laughs> now, with the mo I gotta say, I gotta ask you now, when you said uh, I was, does he say motivating over the hill? Like, does he pl- do a play on words on that? Yeah, could be. I said motivating, but you could be right. It could be motivating.
1: Motivatin
0: like, just the inventiveness. Yeah. Chuck tells an odd story of writing Sweet Little 16.
5: I, I wish I would have gotten the girl's name. This has been asked me so many times, but I was a little kid in Denver. At the Denver Auditorium once, I was on a big tour with, uh, oh, several artists. And this kid, uh, incidentally, I uh, opened the show because uh, most of my music was jumping. They wanted to open the show with it. <laughs> At that time, they said they wanted to open it with a bang, but, but now I, it, it means like, like fire, you know. So well. Anyway, uh, this kid never saw one complete act fully. She was running around the auditorium, uh, the uh, arena there, getting autographs a mile a minute, her wallet waving high in her hand, and she didn't care uh, seemingly about who was on. She she was caring about when they came off so she could get her autograph. But I was writing as I was looking at this kid, and I think I got several lines of um, of 16 that night, that particular night after I came off stage.
1: I hear, by the way, that that moment actually happened during a Chuck Berry concert in Ottawa, not Denver, but Chuck just said it was Denver, and I'm more likely to believe his version.
0: Here he talks about his favorite song. I think I'd have to say Johnny Be Good"
5: because I wrote it sort of biographically. Parts of it is very true, and all of the feeling of it's true, however, and I think that would be... More or less one of my favorites. As I close with it now, and uh, and uh, well, what can I say? But I think it's one of my favorites. From 1958,
1: that's Chuck Berry and Johnny Be Good. One of the most joyous songs of the early rock era. You can actually see Johnny Be Good strumming to the rhythm that the driver's made. And by the way, just to add to the autobiographical nature of the song. Chuck Berry was born on Good Avenue in St.
0: Louis. I did not know that. Wow. (laughs) Here, Chuck talks about his onstage antics. Listen, I would have duck-walked
5: anybody off the stage, believe me. I do think, now it's not for me to say because the public carries your uh, popularity, but I think with the inspiration that I would have had, had there not had I not assumed, I'm not saying there was, had I not assumed that there was no chance at that time, yeah, not only would I have duck-walked, I would have turned no-hand flips.
0: <laughs> we asked Chuck about the song School Days. Well, I wanted to write about school because uh, most of
5: my audience at the particular time was uh, of the school uh, element. And uh, in reminiscing of my school days, from which there were only two high schools in this vast city of St. Louis for uh, uh, my uh, particular specimen. And uh, I wrote about uh, the conditions in, uh, that were at, at that particular time. I was a little bit off, but it, still I find later that I wasn't, because along with the building of schools, the population grew and the same condition maintained.
1: OK,
0: let's keep going. More from Chuck Berry. He talks about a resurgence in rock and roll.
5: Well, gee, they said it about rock and roll in 55 and now the very 25 to 30 year old parents who said that are not even listening to music anymore scarcely and don't care about it and the ones who were 20 when rock and roll came out are venturing into the last phase of their uh, say musical um, appetite and they remember what they heard from the youngsters at home at that time, which was rock and roll, and so now I think that's the reason why the surge is returning, because it is a good music. When I say good music, I mean it's versatile. You know, you can put you can put a dirty lyric and a classic. You know, but now the dirty uh, music uh, stands of itself. Uh, I I I don't prefer it because it wouldn't. It's not popular if. if if the growth of the people of the states dug dirty music, I imagine I'd play some. I don't have to feel what I play, you know.
1: Okay, I'm not 100% sure what Chuck is talking about when he refers to dirty music in that clip. But I think this interview <laughs> is from the early 70s. And of course, Chuck Berry's big hit in 1972 was called My Dingling. Lest we forget. And sadly, tragically, that was his only number one hit. From the Life's Not Fair department,
0: there you go, Exhibit A. (laughs) Hey, Tom, I had a friend that played with Chuck Berry once, and he was telling me about the experience. I gather what happens is Chuck rolls into town, he gets off the plane, and he's got two things in his hands, his guitar and an empty briefcase. (laughs) Oh, okay. He comes into the promoter's office, puts the guitar down, opens the briefcase, gets paid. Seals it back up again And the band are in the dressing room Waiting eagerly Like to meet him, right? Yeah, and they've, they've never met him But they're about to do a show with him Right And so they're all like, you know The sort of eager rock and roll acolytes Meeting the God, you know Yeah And, and Chuck's very sort of bon vivant About the whole thing And then they, they say, well Mr. Barry you know, What what songs are we going to do? What music are we going to do? And Chuck looks at them and goes we're going to do Chuck Berry music. <laughs> In our last clip, Chuck talks about why he thinks rock and roll has lasted. Well, it's
5: simple. It's a, it's a simple melody. Anybody could uh, learn it. Uh, I won't say it's amateur, but it's quite popular. So there you are. Uh, too many people dig it for it to uh, ever go away. So, hail, hail, rock and roll, you know.
1: Hail, hail, rock and roll, indeed. Chuck Berry on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, he's one of the most infamous people in music history. He helped create and then destroy an entire genre of music. My interview with Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols is next.
0: This is Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom man From
1: 1977, the Sex Pistols and God Save the Queen, we mean it, man.
0: <laughs> All right, let's be clear here. Interviewing one of the true iconoclasts of popular music, a man with a well-deserved reputation for chewing up interviewers, is no easy task. But you gotta go for it. As did our very own Tom Jokic, who (laughs) stepped into the ring with John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, to hear his take on self-belief, battling the press, record labels, and the ravages of a serious disease. Lydon emerged from these misadventures in fighting form, as did Tom Jokic. And don't, do not get him started on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, okay? Okay. Right. Tom, you stepped into some seriously shark-infested waters here. How was the master of mayhem to speak to?
1: Well, I kind of think the best way to answer that question is simply to play the interview. For the record, the reason Johnny is on the phone talking to me is he's promoting a documentary called The Public Image is Rotten. John, there are a ton of people in the movie talking about the impact that public image had on their music. Were you surprised yeah. at that?
2: Yeah, I... Uh... I was doing an interview earlier and and, uh, the question was raised about uh, 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 Ginger Baker being on Album Album. And and he he got there really by accident because the band I had were too young and they couldn't cope with the pressure of working in a New York studio. And we just made random phone calls and Ginger Baker answered and said yes. But, uh, uh... how did that alter things? Where am I? I've lost my point. <laughs> <laughs> but were you surprised? Like, did you know over it, the no, years? It, it, it's, no, no, no. Listen, it, it's, uh, I was shocked that people like that responded favorably. Because I'd, I'd actually started to believe up to that point, uh, uh, this entire industry just hated me and there was no place for me in it. And there must be somehow some kind of fraud and, and, and in your own psyche, you start to believe that. You start to doubt, because it was so pernicious and pervasive, the negative press, the hatred, the continual lack of moral support or any support at all from the record companies, the consistent draining of money and keeping you in debt. It wears you down. And so album album right, was a great joy and an eye-opener with, with really seriously professional people actually saying good things about me and, and being able to work with them so things change from that point on and then I'm saying in life uh, it, don't let the bee holes get you down eventually you will win through you have to have more patience than a hospital and I hope that comes through in the documentary and I hope that comes through in pill music that there are no easy answers and everything is a struggle but it's worth it in the end
1: you know, I find what you're saying a little bit surprising, though, because you have this almost confidence in what you are uh, putting out there, music-wise. Wh- uh, and mm. again, whether it goes way back to the '70s or even today, that the beating down by the critics or the haters would have yep. such a profound impact. Because when you do something, mm. you know, when you have a concert, people
2: come to that concert, and oh, you know, yeah, 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 no, and they yeah, love no, you. Yeah, let me explain. I'm telling you this now. This is what's going on in my head. But I would never at the time have declared that publicly. Mm-hmm. I would never show uh, the face of surrender quite the opposite. I, in fact, was accused of even arrogance through this period. Yeah. And it's You know, there's some serious self-doubt, but self-doubt is not a bad thing to have anyway
1: very good point. You know, one of the things that strikes me about your story, John, is that you felt bullied as a child, and you were. You were badly bullied, and that's still an issue so many years later with kids today. What would be your advice about dealing with bullies?
2: Uh, You have to learn to fight back one way or the other. I mean, physically, I couldn't Mm -hmm. because I had all those debilitating illnesses, which is, of course, what made me such a prize victim. But uh, what I did learn was I had to use humour to get myself out mm-hmm. yep. of situations and uh, words became my bullets uh, and I would fire them off and, and they would hit home and, and even the most uh, violent, hateful, dumb gorilla would, would catch something there and it, and it would make them laugh. You know? Something so, it, it would, they'd start self-effacing themselves and that helps. What you're doing then is you're sharing language yeah. right, in, in amusing ways that they hadn't quite considered. And then they want to be in your club, mate, you yeah. know, because yeah. yeah, you're if, the smart one.
1: That's right, and you're the funny one, and humor can really disarm people, can't it?
2: It, it can. Yeah, and but they I've have al- to get it. <laughs> I, they have to. But I've always said you learn more through comedy and humor than you will through serious philosophizing. Sure. You, know, you have to know how to laugh at yourself willingly and openly, and thereby you can laugh at everybody else.
1: Okay, so sticking back to when you were, you know, a teenager, like you were a teen when you started in the Sex Pistols. Did you ever feel like you knew what you were doing at that age in that situation? Because you were thrown in the deep end in
2: many regards. Yeah, well, of course I was, uh, you know, uh, cocky enough to think, huh, I can handle all this. But uh, it was shaky times and and squeaky bums, you know, (laughs) (laughs) too much going on all at once Uh, but i got through it but the thing is that i survived meningitis right where i lost my memory locked up in a hospital for a year took four years to recover my, my proper memory even my even my body motor skills were gone if i survived that what was the damn sex pistols really to me you know not much of a challenge a little tickle shall we say Right? And, and so that's how i view it and, uh, and then of course that little tickle of a pistol turned <laughs> into be a nasty sharp knife on me and so uh, i went on to form a public image yeah i thought right, i've had it, i've had enough trying to deal with lying damn adults that will never ever stop being crooked and chiseling and and trying to grab glory and give themselves fake titles yeah. Uh, so in, into public image with my friends, and then my friends turned, and then I found more friends, and <laughs> suddenly I find I've had forty-nine friends in public image, <laughs> and so uh, life goes on, is what I'm trying to say, and you have to endure. For right? sure. You you cannot rely on other people to be one hundred percent there with you. Hmm. It, 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 in fact, two percent of the time, I would think some. And even that's good enough, actually. Sure, and it it's really, your life. It really is. And, and it's my life, and PIL is my life. PIL is where I absolutely tell the whole truth and nothing but about everything that happens to me.
1: Yeah, and it's your life. You need to lead that parade, don't you?
2: Well, you have been rather stupid if you tried following your own parade.
1: <laughs> okay, one last question. I'm a little bit afraid to ask it. What do you feel the Sex Pistols and PIL's place in the history of, of music is?
2: Ah uh, nothing to do with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. <laughs> right? It's is an amazingly corrupt like institution. How dare they say they're voting and judging when they won't reveal who the judging and voting is done by? Right. right? Plus they charge you to attend. <laughs> yes. Yes, so, you know. So don't attend anything to do with the rock and roll hall of fame. If you've got any sense, you come to the Montreal Club <laughs> on the eighteenth of October. Oh, excellent! <laughs> and after that, of we course, we're I- we're at Toronto Lee's Palace on the nineteenth. Uh, I just uh, yeah, just uh, brought up the dates. So there you go, Canada. Two places.
1: Thanks very much, John Lydon. We really appreciate it. The documentary is called The Public Image is Rotten, and it's in theaters starting
0: tomorrow.
2: Yeah, enjoy. You'll learn a lot about life in it. You really will. It's not just about music.
0: Thanks, John. A real Uh, thrill to talk to you. Thank you. That's our very own Tom Choking in conversation with Johnny Rotten, a.k.a. John Lydon. As you can imagine, Johnny
1: remains outspoken to this day, including some opinions that I personally find pretty distasteful, <laughs> yeah. but he definitely has a place in music history. Um, and the crazy thing is, Christopher, I actually forgot I had done this interview <laughs> and I forgot it was in the archives and I only discovered it as I was just oh, kind man. of going through interviews and I went, holy smoke. I've got Johnny Rotten. I interviewed Johnny Rotten five years ago for this show and never ran it. Anyway, glad I found it. Glad I had a chance to edit it a little bit.
0: And uh, there we are. Johnny Rotten (laughs) from the Sex Pistols on Famous Last Words. Tom, Tom, Tom. I just cannot believe you are the only person who could have interviewed Johnny Rotten and forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, one and done or what here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So isn't that a Neil Young lyric? What's that? Yeah, the interviews are done, but they're long forgotten. Dun, dun, dun.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> there was
1: one with
0: Johnny Rotten. Dan dan We've only gotten slightly off the, the path here, right?
5: <laughs> Every time you go away, I always say, this time it's goodbye.
1: The wonderful Dionne Warwick from 1963 and Anyone Who Had a Heart, written by Hal David and Burt Bacharach.
0: That song still kills me. To me, that's one of the greatest pop songs ever written. I just love it. We lost a giant of songwriting with the recent passing of Burt Bacharach. If you wanted to name some songwriters whose work defined an era, it'd be a short list. Maybe Cole Porter, Gershwin, Lennon and McCartney. Go ahead and let the Dylan and Joni discussions begin. Bert, though, together mostly with lyricist co-writer Hal David, was responsible for a string of hits in the 60s and 70s, often sung by Dionne Warwick, um, like the song Anyone Who Had a Heart. Say a Little Prayer, Alfie. All those songs became unforgettable after one listen. And some of these songs, too, the ones that might have seemed kind of the most lightweight in the catalog, in fact, reveal incredible quirkiness and um, just a lot of melodic detail. Songs like Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head and Do You Know the Way to San Jose. And I'll tell you what those songs did, too. They challenged the listener in a way that would have proved very challenging to the lyricist, Mr. Hal David. Can you imagine listening to those songs for the first time without the lyrics and thinking, what am I going to write to this? I've had that thought. I never got the opportunity, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's not basic four-four time. It's very sophisticated. Like, I never realized that as a kid, but I love those songs. I love Do You Know the Ways to San Jose and What's uh, I'll Never Fall in Love Again. Love them, and I love the way Dionne Warwick sang them. But you listen to them as an adult many years later, and you go, oh, that is not basic. That is actually incredibly challenging and smart.
0: Well, yeah, I mean you listen to the the phrasing on Alfie, how conversational it is. What's it all yeah. about? Alfie? Is it just for the moment I mean it's just the way that it rolls off the tongue. Yeah. And you know, Baccarat was classically trained. He also received instruction from French composer Darius Milo, as as yeah. did by the way Dave Brubeck among others. Okay. So many writers and artists from the early sixties got kind of reduced to insignificance with the arrival of the Beatles and the I guess the British invasion in general. But Backrack and David, for me, and correct me if I'm wrong, rivaled only by Holland Dozier and Holland, kept writing classic songs to outlast us all. Great tribute from
1: Christopher for the late Bert Backrack. And although you could say that Bert's heyday was in the 60s, fans of the 80s know Bert from a cover of this song. There is- That's Naked Eyes from 1983 and always something there to remind me with music by Burt Bacharach. Burt also wrote another huge 80s hit, That's What Friends Are For, a big fundraiser for AIDS research that went to number one and won the Grammy for Song of the Year. Burt Bacharach passed away in February at the age of 94.
0: Tom, that does it for season eight of Famous Last Words. Our show was created and produced by my co-host right here to my right, Mr. Tom Jokic. And to my left, Christopher Ward is the co-writer
1: and researcher of the show. And he, quite frankly, brings a little credibility to the proceedings. Christopher <laughs> is among the original much music VJs. Plus, he's an acclaimed songwriter and author. Check out his book, Is This Live? The Wild Early Days of Much Music. Also, have a listen to his latest album, Same River Twice, now available wherever you listen
0: to music. Thank you for that. Our executive producer is Sarah Cummings. Special thanks to the radio stations that carry this show to listeners across Canada, including News Talk 1010 Toronto, CJAD 800 Montreal, 580 CFRA Ottawa, AM 800 CKLW Windsor, News Talk 1290 London, 610 CKTB St. Catharines, CFAX, Victoria, AM 1150, Kelowna, and 91X in Belleville.
1: If you're listening to this show on one of those stations, let that station know. And if you're listening to this as a podcast, let everyone know.
0: And thank you for listening. Famous Lost Words returns soon with season number nine. Number nine, number nine, (laughs) Number nine. Number nine. (laughs) number nine.